Good morning, my relatives. It's Wednesday, November 29th, the end of the month already. And I'm sitting here with a fantastic cup of coffee. I uh, got it from my, I got the beans from a local uh, Rwandan coffee shop here in town that I love to go to. Um, has some of the better beans here in DC. But anyway, so after traveling for a lot this past month, uh, it's nice to be home to brew my own coffee in my own AeroPress and to be able to sit down with all of you, uh, sip some coffee and have a discussion about events going on around the country, both politically, religiously and socially. Anyway, before I begin, let me just do like I always do and uh, acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from what we now call Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional ones of the Piscataway. I want to honor the Piscataway as the hosts of the land where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on and working on these lands today. So if you follow me on social media, you'll know that, uh, A, I've been on the road for almost the past three weeks, uh, two and a half weeks. I've uh, been to places like Alabama and Montana and Wisconsin, and I just got back from New York City over the weekend. And I want to talk just for a few minutes about my trip to New York City because I really enjoyed my time there. I spoke at the Riverside Church, which is a historic church built a long time ago um, in kind of the Upper West Side of New York City. And a uh, beautiful building. It was built by Rockefeller, I believe. But it, over the years, over the decades, it's had a very historic role with a lot of key speeches and sermons being preached there. And I didn't know much about the church before I got there. And after I, I accepted the invitation and I was excited to go because I started telling people where I was going, where I'd be preaching, they said, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an honor to be preaching in that church. And so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But the time went really well there. I had so much fun. Um, I, I had a great time with, with the leadership at the Riverside Church. I had fantastic conversations with members of the congregation and people who were visiting. Um, so I just want to, I was there. The, the senior minister at Riverside is uh, Reverend Adrian Thorne. And I was able to get to know her a little bit. Uh, here's a picture I took with Reverend Thorne, as well as uh, Reverend Mira Swalini Joyner, who is also someone I knew from here in DC, actually. She was a uh, uh, was working at Peace Fellowship, the church I um, attend fairly regularly, or I used to attend fairly regularly up until COVID. But um, uh, the pastor there is Delante Goulston, who is a great friend of mine, and uh, Mira, who is standing right next to me in this picture. She was uh, on leadership there before she moved to the Riverside Church about a year ago, I think. And then uh, Reverend Thorne is on the far side, um, and she is the head minister at Riverside Church. Also, another uh, of the pastors there, and here's just a picture of myself and Pastor Mira as she was kind of giving me a tour of the building. And this is just, this is a very historic, very big church, beautiful. Um, and it was just, it was a lot of fun to be there. Um, but another uh, of the leadership team there is... Uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver, who I've met numerous times. Uh, she works 
in partnership with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship as well. And as a, a colleague and good friend of uh, John Whitfleet, who's a good friend of mine. And so her and I have crossed paths numerous times over the past few decades, I would say, at the Worship Institute. And so it was really fun to see her there and to have a chance to catch up with her a little bit um, as well. Um, so, and then, so I want to just share, I, I had a chance to preach on Acts 10 and my sermon there was titled Radical Inclusivity. And this church has a very intentional online ministry and a lot of their congregation actually um, joins uh, virtually. And so they have um, a lot of stuff set up for the service to be streamed and everything else. And I want to just share with you the link right now in the chat to the uh, the sermon that I was able to preach there. Again, it was my sermon on Acts 10, Radical Inclusivity, taken from what's going to be the first chapter of my next book on uh, decolonizing faith. And I was very thrilled at how the church responded and how the leadership of the church responded as well as the members of the congregation of the church responded. Um, I thought it was a really, really good um, reaction where it wasn't like, oh, thank you, we've known that. Yes, those are good values. It was because the church has a, a high value for being inclusive. Um, but I was told numerous times after the service that thank you for challenging us and getting us even to look more critically at Jesus and at the model that he gave um, and the, between the way he treated Gentiles versus how he treated Jewish people and even Samaritans. Um, and so, yeah, people were both and joyful to receive the message, but also challenged by it because I kind of gave them a whole new paradigm. Um, and then afterwards, I did another session there. It was kind of a, a talk back or a lunch and learn where I went through my content on the doctrine of discovery. And I don't have that link right in front of me right now, but I'll share that on my social media later today. Um, also, it was a great opportunity while I was there um, one of the, uh, the the guests, or one of the guests, the guests that they had there was they had the Thunderbird American Indian Dancers located from uh, New York. Um, this is a intertribal uh, dance group, and um, they were there to both open the service as well as they danced just before I preached. And it was such an honor to meet them, to talk with them, uh, to hear some of their stories, and I was very, very blessed by their presence in the service. So um, the, ser the, the link I shared just a minute ago was only the sermon, but I'm gonna share another link right now into the chat. And this is a, a link of the entire service, the entire stream service. And I bookmarked it to right where the Thunderbird American Indian dancers uh, did their presentation just before I started preaching. And uh, it's a beautiful dance. I welcome you to watch it um, if you'd like to see that. But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to see them and to be able to spend some time getting to know them a little bit while I was there. So that was that was a great a great uh, way. That was the, my last uh, kind of public paid speaking gig uh, of 2023, and I thought it was a really really good one to kind of end my year on with the interaction I had there, the chance to teach, the people I met, and hopefully a longer-term partnership. I've already heard from the leadership of the church, and they definitely would like to have me back 
and to have uh, more dialogue and more teaching uh, in the church. And so, yeah, it was it was very exciting to be able to uh, to have that as my final event. It felt like it was a great way to end the year for me. Um, but and I, I, I was in New York City, and so as you know, I went over to Iowa, where my son lives, and our family traveled there over last week to spend some time with him. It was my birthday, um, and so we celebrated my birthday there as a family, and then I had to fly back on Saturday morning back to D.C., and then Sunday morning, I jumped on a train about 5.30 in the morning, took that into uh, Penn Station in New York City, grabbed a taxi to the church, spent the day at the church, took the subway back to Penn Station, waited about an hour, and then jumped on the train and came home. <laughs> I was able to start the day in my own house and end the day in my own house, but spend a fantastic day in New York City. And I love the East Coast for that reason, right? I love how close things are here and how easy you can get around going from D.C. to New York and back. It's literally just a day trip. And the Amtrak is one of the easiest ways to get in and out and back and forth from here to New York City. So it was on the way home, I just kind of collapsed after all of that travel and um, all of the stuff I've been doing this past month. It was great just to kind of decompress. And uh, then over the weekend, or yesterday and our Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, I also just took some time down. But I really wanted to get back onto my schedule for my second cup of coffee. And so I wanted to, there's a lot of things. As I've said before, that we need to talk about um, closing out the year, going into the next election next year. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of things we need to discuss. Um, who's online here? Joy, Yat, hey, thank you for joining. Um, and uh, glad you could be here today. It's good to have you here. I know there's a lot of other people online. So thank you, everybody, for joining in today. It's good to have you back. I hope your cup of coffee is as good as mine is. And now I want to get into talking some about the, the content. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the 2024 election, specifically about what's going on in the GOP right now. Um, if you've been paying attention, obviously the debates have been happening. I still am going to have a second cup of coffee where I look at the most recent debate. I haven't watched it yet. I've been traveling a lot, but I am going to watch it hopefully this week or early next week. And I hope sometime next week I'm going to be able to discuss it in this, my second cup of coffee. Um, obviously, Trump has not been joining the GOP debate. He feels he's above it. And um, so it really looks like it's a race for second place. But something very interesting is happening, which is Nikki Haley has um, surpassed both um, Ron DeSantis and some of the other more leaders in the in that race, um, and she's become almost the favorite now coming out of uh, that last debate and going into these past few weeks, where she is really uh, consolidating the Never Trump vote. And I'm going to share a few articles here with what she's doing, but um, this is uh, an article out of Politico talking about how she is uh, really starting to get the momentum of everyone who's not voting for Trump and yet still is in the GOP. And that's a large group of people, right? Um, if you remember in the 2020 election, uh, Joe Biden really went after that vote in the general election. He reached across the aisle and tried very hard to uh, campaign to moderate uh, Republicans who were not going to vote for Trump. And there's a large number of them. I interact with a lot of them, right? When I was in Iowa City, um, 
or no, I was in Orange City, Iowa, in on my book tour in 2024. It was the largest event on my book tour, and it was almost all of them were diehard Republicans who weren't going to vote for Trump, but they were very much conservative in the right wing of their party. And Nikki Haley is beginning to consolidate that um, with her with her uh, campaign consolidate that vote. And there was another interesting article, and I, I'll invite you to share this one. The, the, the Koch brothers um, ended up endorsing uh, their network and ended up endorsing Nikki Haley just the other day. And of course, they are a massive fundraising arm of the conservative part of the Republican Party. And they have stood on the sidelines and have not supported Trump either in 2016 or in 2020. And this year, it looks like they're going to put a lot of their energy and money behind Nikki Haley, which, again, will make it interesting because they obviously have some fairly substantial sway within the Republican Party. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was it was interesting to kind of see that happen even in just these past few days as that endorsement came out and as Nikki Haley has been gaining momentum in consolidating the never Trump vote. Um, I read another article, which I want to share with you. This was what one was an NPR and it was titled sometimes overlooked by campaigns. Native voters could decide major elections in 2024. And it talks about how the native community around the country, and it, it estimates there's about 5 million native voters in the country right now. And because we generally tend to vote in almost like a, a block, not entirely, but there's a lot of energy um, in similar directions. Mostly it's left-leaning, but there are a lot of right-leaning natives as well. Um, but it talked about just the way there's been a growing movement of consolidating native votes and really kind of understanding the power of the native vote, right? If you could remember back to 2020, when I ran in the, in the presidential campaign back then, they had, it was really the first mainstream native presidential forum where they had top tier candidates there. You know, I was there, um, I wasn't a top tier candidate, but I, I was there, um, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders was there. Elizabeth Warren was there. Um, uh, a lot of the mainstream, uh, both left and right candidates were at that forum. It was held in, in Iowa. And it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of media attention. Even my campaign got one or two fairly um, crucial articles out of that. Out of that, uh, and it was it was a very strong presence, a, a very strong demonstration of the presence of the native vote. And my strategy, right, when I ran in 2020, my strategy, I intentionally campaigned in all of 2019 in Native communities. I traveled around the country visiting Native communities because I felt very strongly that if you want to be president of the United States, you need to take your message first and foremost to the indigenous hosts of the land where you're living. You need to take your, your message directly to the native communities. And so I campaigned throughout the country in native communities all around Turtle Island. Um, and I knew I wasn't gonna get much press. And then of course, just when we were starting to open up the more public campaign, um, that's when COVID hit and everything shut down and um, 
we won't go into rehashing the 2020 election, but the, the point is there was, there was a, a strong presence of native vote. And I remember in our campaign, we were actually doing the math because obviously I was running as an independent, which meant I would have to get signatures in every state to get on the ballot. And when we started looking at the number of registered native voters or of native voters in each state, we realized, our campaign realized that in virtually all 50 states, the native community had enough numbers to put me on the ballot in all 50 states. And that was going to be one of our strategies was we were going to really work as we started up in 2020. Again, COVID hit and we couldn't do this. But as we really went into 2020, we were looking, okay, how can we really get this message out of if we can consolidate the Native vote, the Native America, even if they don't want to vote for me, you at least have the power to put a Native American candidate on the ballot in all 50 states. And so this article is a great article to look at. Um, they also point out in the article that there are several key states, um, Alaska, Arizona, Michigan, Montana, Nevada, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, where there's a high number of native voters and they have the very real possibility of swaying the outcome of a lot of the elections in those states. Of course, there's others beyond that. There's places like Hawaii and, um, and New Mexico and uh, Washington and, and Portland, where there's also strong Native communities. California has a large Native community. And so there's a lot of places where the Native community has some sway. Um, but I encourage you to read this article. It's a, it's a fairly good article, and it gives a lot of good details about the Native vote and kind of where it could be going um, in 2024. Terry Yat A, thanks for joining. Charlene Yat A, thanks for joining today. Great to have both of you on uh, the, the this live stream. I hope you're enjoying your cup of coffee. I'm really enjoying mine. I want to, before I get into my last story, where I want to talk about just remembering what's going on. Uh, and today is the anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre on November 29, 1864. Um, but before I talk about that, I wanna just take a few moments to, there, I get questions fairly frequently about people wanting to know uh, how I do my work, how I'm able to keep my voice independent, how do I um, get funding for my work, and um, how can they support what I'm doing? And so I wanna just give you an example of some of the work I'm trying to do. Um, this wasn't very visible on social media, but on YouTube, a year ago, I posted a video called Why I No Longer Celebrate Thanksgiving and Neither Should You. Um, and I went through all of my Lincoln content and I laid out how from the beginning, beginning with the great dying in 16, uh, 16 to 1619 and the, the New England Land Charter, um, and the first Thanksgiving in 1621 through Lincoln and even through the modern day, how Thanksgiving has really been a holiday about celebrating the genocide of Native peoples. And I, I did this uh, presentation on my YouTube channel a year ago, and it did fairly well a year ago. It got like 3,000 views. Um, which again, I don't have a massive channel, but it, that was fairly good. I was pleased with that. Um, 
this year, end of October and going into November, I noticed that the algorithm on YouTube was promoting it more and I was getting more and more views on it. And that increased up through Thanksgiving. Um, I was getting dozens of comments a day, um, hundreds, even thousands of views a day as going, we're going up into Thanksgiving and a lot of reaction and comments. And there's a lot of uh, discussion going on there. I'm going to share that link with you right now. Again, this is on my YouTube channel. Um, and it received, all told, it right now, it, so it was at 3,000 last summer. After a year of being up, it got about 3,000 views, most of them last November and, and December. Um, but this year, in the past probably four to six weeks, it's gotten another 15,000 views. We're almost up to 18,000 views right now. Um, and I love that because what it does is it allows me to engage with a massive audience, right? 18,000 people at least watched part of the video and uh, the, the video had an average of at least 15 to 16 minutes of view time by every viewer, which means a lot of people are watching it all the way to the end. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are turning it off the moment they found out what I was going to be talking about. But, and even based on the comments, that was very true. But um, that's one of the things that I love doing with my social media is I was able to put that up and then the, the YouTube algorithm started promoting it this year and it just, the viewership just skyrocketed. And I'm sure that's going to happen next year and the year after that. And this one video will hopefully have the, the, the opportunity to reach tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands of people. Now, I, I recognize that talking about this is very controversial. And there are very few advertisers who would probably want to put their money behind that video. And that's one of the reasons why I don't monetize my YouTube channel. Because I don't want to give advertisers any influence whatsoever over what I say or don't say. And so I've looked several times over the past year about should I monetize my social media? Should I monetize my, my YouTube channel? And I know YouTube shows videos are ads on some of my videos, but I'm not collecting money from any of those. And I, I just talked about it with my, my assistant and our team last, like a few weeks ago and decided going into 2024, should we think about monetizing my YouTube channel? And ultimately I decided against it because I don't want to give advertisers any influence whatsoever over what I say on my YouTube channel. And I want to begin continue, I want to continue engaging things like controversial topics like Thanksgiving and stuff like that. And so that means I'm missing, I'm missing a revenue stream uh, where I'm, I'm not able to, to help pay my bills and, and support the work I'm trying to do because I'm not monetizing those videos. And so I, I want to give you some other ways that you can support the work. If you like what I'm doing, especially with my speaking and my YouTube and my second cup of coffee and things like that. And one of the best ways you can support me is on my Patreon. I started this almost two years ago. And there are several tiers. There's a supporters tier. There's an ask questions tier. There's a join the conversation tier and a decolonizing faith tier and even a consulting slash coaching tier. Um, they range anywhere from $5 a month all the way up to $120 a month or $125 a month, I think, for the consulting tier. Um, 
but uh, for f the five dollars a month, right, that gives you ad-free access. So after I do my ten cups of coffee, I upload them almost immediately into my Patreon. I have it hosted on uh, uh, another on the site there. There's no ads on there. I also put the audio up there, so you can get ad-free versions of my content, where even YouTube can't put ads on it that support their work. Um, and so you can get that. I also, I started doing something recently where um, occasionally I record some of my, the audio from some of my live events. I'm trying to do it once or twice a month. And then I post those recordings onto my Patreon where all of my subscribers can hear them, including people at the supporters level. And so, um, yeah, so anything that goes up on my YouTube channel and occasionally, there's one once or twice a month, hopefully on average, there will be one of my um, in-person events that I was able to record the audio from, and I'll post that there too. And it's just a great way to, to support my work and to engage with me a bit more. I also put social media content up there, pictures of where I'm going, more in-depth uh, posts about what I'm doing. And so that's a great place to follow me. I then have the Ask Questions tier, which gets all the stuff from the supporters tier. And on Ask Questions tier, once a month, I have an open Q&A, kind of an, an, an AMA, like an Ask Me Anything, where people can ask questions about the book. They can ask questions about my speeches, about my travel, about my work, about whatever they want to ask. And that's another great way for people to engage with me at a bit more deeper level. And then when I do have guests on my second cups of coffee that have the time, they frequently join me for a Q&A again on my Patreon where we do an in-depth Q&A. In fact, we're going to be doing that tomorrow when I'm, I'm also actually going to be intervie interviewing uh, Sarah Augustine and uh, Sherry Hosteller. And they both wrote a book together called So We and Our Children May Live. It's uh, another book on the doctrine of discovery. Sarah, of course, is a really good friend of mine. I've known Sherry for a while too now. Sarah wrote the book The Land is Not Empty, the book that I had the honor of writing the foreword for. And they came out with this other book. And so I'm thrilled tomorrow to be able to interview them on my second cup of coffee and talk about their book. And then following that interview, we're going to move over to my Patreon and we'll have a Q&A with them there where we can go even more in depth on some of the stuff. And so that's a great place where if you want to have more in-depth conversation or more follow-up, that's a great place to do it. It's $10 a month. Um, then I have the Join the Conversation tier, which is where I go more in depth into some of my content. I give lectures or preach sermons or give other content that I do there specifically for that tier. And then I have the Decolonizing Faith tier, where literally every month I'm going into depth on the content I'm writing for my upcoming book. Um, it used to be called my Unselling Truth tier, where my co-author and I did a virtual book study going through every chapter of our book together. And now it's the Decolonizing Faith tier. And all of that content is still archived on that tier. And so, again, I've been doing this for two years now. So not only do you get the new content that comes every month, whatever tier you join, but you get all of the content for that tier from the past two years. So even if you just wanted to join the Decolonizing Faith tier 
for like a month, right? And you, you can get all of my most recent content about my new book. You can also binge all 12 episodes of the virtual book study I did with Singshan Ra on On Selling Truths, you know, and it's a great way to support my work, but also go much deeper into the dialogue. And then I just added a consulting tier where, again, this is kind of the one of the top tiers where you get access to everything I put up on Patreon, but you also get a 45-minute coaching slash consulting question or a consulting session once a month with me where you can ask questions and talk about specific things with your work or your ministry regarding the work that I'm doing. And it's just a great way to kind of have some more in-depth conversation with people who are really wrestling with how do we incorporate these things you're putting out there into our organization or into our church or into our, our other spaces we're trying to do these things. So that's one of the, the best ways to support my work is on my Patreon. The other way to support my work is uh, by purchasing signed copies of my book from my website. Obviously, I, I get a little bit of honor of royalty when you purchase it from Amazon or anywhere else. But if you buy it directly from my website, that allows that supports me more directly. And again, through October, November, we've been offering uh, free shipping. So if you want to support my work and you haven't bought my book yet, you can order a signed copy from my website. You can also from there get the 10, the 10 book special, the book study special that also has free shipping where if you order 10 copies of my book, um, you will get uh, uh, not only 10 signed copies of my book shipped to a single address that you can use for your book study, but you will also get um, a 45 minute virtual Q&A that you can schedule with me anytime over the next year where we can get more in depth about my book. And then the other way that if, if neither of those two are, are appealing to how you can support me, you can also just simply tip me or PayPal me, right? And uh, so I'm gonna put the link there. This is uh, the PayPal me link where if you just wanna say, hey, I, I like what you're doing. Thank you for doing the work. I wanna help keep your voice as independent and as truthful as possible. Um, here's just a way you can just put a tip or put a put a, um, a financial, uh, not donation, but gift um, uh, support for my work so that I continue doing this. Again, I, I, I'm offering these ways because I don't want to sell advertising. I, I've chosen not to do that because I don't want to give advertisers any control over what I do and do not say on my social media. So those are just a few things, and I, I welcome you to to um, think about supporting my work any way you can. But most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. And now I wanna talk a little bit about um, the Sand Creek Massacre. As I said earlier today, November 29, is the um, anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre that happened back in 1864. Um, we wrote about it in our book, On Selling Truths. It's a normal part of my lectures when I talk about the doctrine of discovery everywhere I go. It's part of my Lincoln content because it's basically the last of Lincoln's ethnic cleansing uh, massacres uh, before he was assassinated um, in 1865. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very um, sad part of our nation's history. And so the National Park Service has this article up there that I'm, just, I'm sharing that with you um, where you can read kind of just a, an overview of that massacre and what happened there. On my social media, I frequently share a quote 
um, not on my social media, in my presentations, I, I give a quote by um, the Colorado Senate, um, which gave a joint resolution in 2024 um, regarding the Sand Creek Massacre. And it lays out the horrors of what happened that day. And it's a, it's a statement of acknowledgement and of kind of even owning what the state was involved in. Um, and I, again, I share that frequently. So if you do not know about the Sand Creek Massacre, um, you have to go back all the way to 18, to 18, uh, the 1850s, where the U.S. government signed a treaty with the um, Cheyenne and Arapaho. Again, establishing most of eastern Colorado as their treaty lands. Um, when the gold rush hit in, in the early 1850s and prospectors and settlers just started swarming into Colorado and California, those lands were overrun. And so just before Lincoln was inaugurated, um, a few weeks earlier, I think, uh, they renegotiated another treaty, creating a new reservation that was much smaller for the Cheyenne and Arapaho. And it was in eastern Colorado as well, but a much smaller piece of land. And on November 29, 1864, um, the Cheyenne Rapa were on their treaty lands. They were waving a white flag of surrender and an American flag. And a U.S. Army led by Captain, uh, uh, not Captain, by Colonel Shivington, who was also a Methodist pastor, they came intentionally to this camp and he ordered everyone slaughtered. And it was just a horrific, horrific massacre. And the joint resolution even stated that the genitalia of the Cheyenne Arapaho were paraded down the streets of Denver in celebration of this. I want to share a little bit more about the horrors of this massacre. I was doing some research this morning and I found this on the Smithsonian Magazine website. And I'm going to put this in there. And I, I need to warn you, um, it's, it's a fairly, um, it's a fairly uh, blunt, even graphic description of what happened in this massacre. And there's two stories. The first one was the report given by Colonel John Shivington himself regarding the massacre and stating what he did and even justifying it. And he wrote that at daylight this morning, we attacked Cheyenne village of 130 lodges from 900 to 1000 warriors strong. Shivington wrote his superiors late on November 29. His men, he said, waged a furious battle against well-armed and entrenched foes ending in a great victory, the deaths of several chiefs, quote, between 400 and 500 other Indians, and almost an annihilation of the entire tribe. Now, there were dissenters among those under his command, and Captain Silas Soule, who was a militant abolitionist and an eager, an eager warrior, much like Shivington, but Sol was appalled by this attack and the orders that, that Shivington gave on Sand Creek. And he, it says he saw this as a betrayal of peaceful Indians and he refused to fire a shot or order his men into action. 
instead bearing witness to the massacre and recording it in chilling detail. And this is what, again, this is written in this, uh, in this article, and this is the quote, um, and this is the description in the article which quotes him. Quote, hundreds of women and children were coming towards us and getting on their knees for mercy, he wrote, only to be shot and have their brains beat out by men professing to be civilized. Indian, Indians didn't fight from trenches, as, as Shivington claimed. They fled up the creek and desperately dug into its sand banks for protection. From there, some young men defended themselves as well as they could with a few rifles and bows until overwhelmed by carabines and howitzers. However, others, others were chased down and killed as they fled across the plains. Soul estimated the Indians dead at 200 all but 60 of them, women and children. He also told of how the soldiers not only scalped the dead, but cut off the ear and privates of chiefs. Squaws snatches were cut off for trophies of Shimington's leadership. Soul reported there was no organization among our troops. They were a perfect mob, every man on his own hook. Given this chaos, some of the dozen or so soldiers killed at Sand Creek were likely hit by Indian, by friendly fire. This is disgraceful. I am grateful that the state of Colorado has done a better job than most states of acknowledging what it was complicit in. This wasn't just the, I mean, the state of California absolutely was complicit in the, or the state of Colorado absolutely was complicit in this, even encouraging um, the, 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 um, violence against uh, non-friendly Indians. But it was the Union Army, Colonel Shivington, under the command of Abraham Lincoln, who ordered this. This wasn't just a Colorado problem. This was a national problem. This is what Abraham Lincoln was doing. And again, eight days later, December 6, 1864, in his State of the Union address, his annual address, Abraham Lincoln essentially stated, we're going to complete Manifest Destiny. The railway is going to make it all the way from the east to the west coast. Eight, one week later, one week later, Abraham Lincoln announced that we, this nation, was going to complete its Manifest Destiny. So I encourage you today, my relatives, to take time to lament this massacre, to mourn this history, and to honor the native nations of Turtle Island. This story has a special meaning for me because not only did it take place in the Southwest, where I'm from, but I lived in Denver for a number of years. I was a pastor at the Christian Indian Center in Denver, Colorado. And this was the history of the land where I lived. My family, my mom's family is from Denver. I have, rel have relatives there. I lived in the city myself for two years. And I didn't know about this massacre prior 
while I was living there. It was, it was while I was living there. And then after I moved, I began to learn a lot of these things. Um, and mostly it was after I had lived there that I began to learn all of these things, but it, it's horrifying. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing the work I have to do. I'm doing because we need to create common memory, my relatives. The United States of America does not know its own history. It is intentionally ignorant. It is in a intentional state of denial about its history. It doesn't want to acknowledge these things. And we need to find a way not to shame and not to cancel people, but to create common memory so that we can have healthier community. That's, that's what we're working towards. That's what I'm driven by. And so today I honor the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations. I honor the people. I thank them for their continued stewardship of the lands of Colorado. And I mourn what was done to them by the nation that I'm a citizen of. I mourn that. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts about this today, my relatives. I hope these things are helpful for you. I want to share with you. Um, oh, I thought I had this link here, but maybe I don't. Uh, let me get it really quick. Um, there is, I have a, uh, I have a Linktree account. And on my Linktree account, you can get access to all of my, um, all of my uh, social media, as well as a lot of my resources and the stuff I put out there. I'm starting to use this more and more. And I want to share it with you today. Um, and so there it is. I just put it into the chat. This is my Linktree account. And on that account, you can get access to all of my social media, all of the accounts that I have. You can get access to several of my key videos and presentations I put up, and as well as to my website and other things I've done. Um, but yeah, it, it's a good place where if you want to know how to follow me best or how to engage with some of what I'm doing there, look at the links on that Linktree. Um, but yeah, this is an important day, my relatives. There's a lot of things we need to learn how to acknowledge as a nation. And I thank you for taking time to join me today. I thank you for your willingness to engage in these conversations. I hope that you will learn how to create common memory alongside with me. And I hope that we will all learn how to walk in beauty together. I can't have my relatives. Yeah. I'll be back tomorrow with another second cup of coffee and I'll be talking with Sarah Augustine and Sherry Hostetler about their new book. So until then, walk in beauty and may we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Hakone. <laughs>